We're in Genesis, believe it or not. This marks about the halfway point through this book. 50 chapters in Genesis. After today, we'll be a little more than halfway through. Hard to believe, but there's, this is the seventh installment of our sermon booklets that we provide for you. So if you uh, did not grab one of those on the way in, get one on the way out. You can use them to take notes. Use them in your quiet times, in your community group. There's questions and all those good things. Maybe go pick up a copy and then after service today, go, go flip through it, read through it, discuss the sermon over at Maple Street. So our friends are open on Sundays now, and we just all say, praise God for that. Okay, so anyway, go, go visit them. They're a great gospel, they're a great partner of ours as well, great community partner. Guys, um, Susan and I were in Atlanta recently, and while we were there, we saw memorabilia from the 1996 Olympics. It's hard to believe it's coming up on 25 years since Atlanta hosted that event. But back in April of 1996, the Olympic torch began its circuitous journey from Los Angeles to Atlanta. So whoever the host, comp- host country is for the Olympics that year, the, the Olympic torch always makes a journey across that country and winds its way over hill and dale. And in, this is indeed what happened um, here in the United States. That route, by the way, took 10,000 runners, 84 days to go 15,000 miles. And it, the torch was always going. It was day or night. And one of the things that I can remember is that sometimes when the, when the torch would come through, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, it came here through Tallahassee or, or close by, one of the things that, that I noticed that many times when the torch would come through a city or major metropolitan area, there was a ton of fanfare, excitement, enthusiasm, cameras, local celebrities, personalities, interviews, marching bands, you know, it was just all that. But sometimes when the torch would waved its way across the countryside into the wee hours and it was there was not much population around sometimes all you could see on the road was one guy or one woman with a torch nobody else around that person just running running doing the Forrest Gump thing right and there might be one television camera or Farmer Brown might be on the porch and would kind of clap his hands as the torch would go by But regardless of what would happen, the torch never went out. Now, actually, I think that is a good picture of the way the Bible portrays the gospel and the church. You see, the gospel torch, so to speak, has been something that's been entrusted to all of us as believers to pass down to the next generation, whether it's church to church or leader to leader or parents to child or friend to friend. And sometimes, just like that Olympic torch, there is a ton of fanfare in the life cycle of the church. The church is popular. The gospel's bearing fruit. There is revival. There's Christendom and the kingdom are being built. But other times, let's be honest, the church and the gospel witness can be just like that lonely little torch making its way down the highway. I was reminded of this reality. I've been reading, studying, preparing for teaching that I'm going to be doing this summer on our Reformation and Martin Luther tour that uh, Four Oaks is going to be taking. There's about 40 of us who are set to go. And as I've been reading and studying about the Reformation, just to be reminded again, and it is kind of shocking at how close 
the gospel came to being virtually, utterly extinguished from a human perspective. The church was utterly corrupt. The gospel was utterly lost. But then, and here's the, here's the battle cry of the Reformation, post tenebras lux, out of darkness, light. And there you see Luther with the torch running by the roadside, carrying it on to the future. And here's a little in-sermon infomercial for you. Four spots left on that trip, by the way. Going like hotcakes, so you better jump on board. Seriously, if you're interested, come talk to me. But it reminds me of what we see here in this part of Genesis. Remember, Abraham is the first bearer of the torch. God has given them his torch, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you and your line and your descendants. I'm going to go before you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to, I'm going to raise up a people. I'm going, to, I'm going to save the nations through a chosen Messiah. And we've seen Abraham, haven't we, making that journey oftentimes alone, oftentimes with Sarah and the people around him. But last we saw of Abraham last week, Abraham had passed away. And Isaac and Ishmael were right there at his funeral. And do you know that this is the last time that we ever hear of Ishmael again in biblical history? The last time. Because the torch doesn't go to him, the torch goes to Isaac. And that's what we saw last time. And this passage, though, today, really wrestles with this question of who will Isaac pass the torch to? How will the line move forward? How will God fulfill his promises in days that are going to be pretty stark, pretty dark, from a human perspective, almost hopeless? And so here, here's our theme for our time today. Then I'll tell you where we're going. Here, here's the theme. The way God's promise, the way God's line marches through history, the way the gospel torch is passed, is through the Lord's supernatural, sovereign, and saving grace from start to finish. And we're going to see that here. So, so three points to this message coming from this passage. Number one, we're going to talk about the story I just want to unpack the story, what's happening, clarify some, some things, try to help us understand what's going on. Then we're going to talk about the meaning. Why is Moses giving us this recollection of Jacob and Esau? And then secondly, the application. What does this mean for us? But before we dive into that, let's pray and ask God to do what only he can do. Lord Jesus Apart from the life-giving work of your spirit, these words will sort of dribble out of my mouth. These words will just sort of fall off the edge of this lectern. Lord, we know, we recognize that unless your spirit gives life, goes before us, opens our eyes, quickens our hearts, that we can't do it. We, we can't give ourselves spiritual life, Lord. Only you can do that. But we believe that you've given us your word. You've not left us without hope. You've not left us without your word. So, Father, please meet us this morning, I pray. And it's in your son's name, Jesus Christ, we lift these things up. Amen. The story. Isaac and Rebecca, no kids, 
Moses tells us Rebecca is barren, and obviously this is a multi-layered problem. On a personal level, like any mom who desperately wants to have kids, many of you can relate to this, but hasn't been able to, Rebecca feels that pain. We know there's a cultural pain because in that ancient Near Eastern culture, women derive so much of their worth by their ability to bear and have children and to propagate the line. But because we've been behind the scenes and we know sort of some of the inner workings of God here, we recognize that fundamentally this is a spiritual problem. It's a spiritual problem because the gospel torch has been passed to Isaac and Isaac is not married. He's not getting any younger and Rebecca is barren. Now, if this all sounds eerily familiar, it is. We've heard this over and over again with Sarah, have we not, and Abraham. And we may have to say, what's, what's Moses' deal with all this? Is this? Does this family struggle with infertility? Is there a curse on this family? Why is Moses telling us this again? And I think he is because it's an object lesson for us. Moses is again stating this so that we understand unequivocally, Four Oaks, that this promise, the Messiah, the line of promise, the promise to bless all the nations, to give salvation, it's all of grace from start to finish. It's all by the supernatural saving work of God. Your path today, your life, your soul, your salvation is wholly and completely dependent upon God from start to finish. No amount of ingenuity, razzle-dazzle, cleverness, strategic planning, as much as all those have their place, will save you and none of it will save me. This is why Isaac prays. Now, we, we need to understand something. It's not like Isaac woke up one day after 20 years and it's like, oh, Sarah's not, I mean, uh, Rebecca's not having, she's not pregnant, she's not conceiving. I think I'll pray about that. No, it tells us in the text that Isaac is 60 years old. It's been 20 years. 20 years of barrenness that he has been praying undoubtedly and that Rebecca has been crying out to God. Because again, Isaac recognizes that unless God intervenes in Rebecca's womb, there will be no life. Sidebar, just real quick. Show me a person who doesn't pray, and I will show you a person who does not have an accurate assessment of themselves. Show me a person who prays, and I will show you someone who has way too much confidence in their autonomy, their individualism, their giftedness. The Bible calls this pride. But show me someone who prays. I'll show you someone who's humble. I'll show you someone who knows accurately who they are and more, even more importantly, who God is, that apart from him, they can do nothing. And this is Isaac. It's a good model for us. And it tells us, look at verse 21, the Lord granted his request. Sarah was pregnant with twins, which has got to be great news, right? Well, yes and no. That's what we're going to see. Yes, because there is now an heir, but no, because something, something is amiss. Something is adrift. Look at verse 22. It says that these children struggled within her. Now, when we think about baby boys or, or even young brothers, toddler brothers, 
struggling with each other, what do we think about? Like rock'em sock'em robots, right? Or like patty cake, or fist bumps, or rock, paper, scissors, or just general horsing around, wrestling around. That's not what the Hebrew word means here. If you want to get a vision of the Hebrew word, just if you watched the boxing match last night with Tyson Fury, and every boxer should be named Tyson Fury, right? There you go. The word struggle literally means to crush, to bruise, to collide, to run into. Now, we don't know exactly what this looked like in the context of Rebecca's womb, but we do know thus was born maybe the most infamous sibling rivalry in the history of the world. And that's saying something, right? Think about people like Cain and Abel or Elizabeth and Mary, Queen of Scots. Both of those ended up with the other sibling dead, right? So, so, so to say it's the most infamous sibling rivalry is to say something. We don't know exactly how Rebecca is experiencing this. Certainly there's like some physical aspect, but we sense here from the Hebrew that there is some sense of foreboding. There's, there's anxiety, there's fear, there is this sense, this mother's intuition that something is not right. And so she does what Isaac does. It says she inquires of the Lord and it says, if it is thus, why is this happening? It can really be translated, Lord, why me? You've give, I prayed for this pregnancy, but yet there's some sort of war going on in my soul, in my womb. Lord, you've made a promise, you've planned something, but, but it seems like something's wrong. It seems like something is missed. This is not the way I thought this was going to turn out. And so God told her more, maybe, than she wanted to know. If you could have the choice that somebody could, with complete clairvoyance, tell you what's going to happen for the rest of your life. At this year, this year, some of you are already shaking your heads, right? You got your fingers in your ear. Would you do it? Now, some of us, some of you crazy people would do that, okay? Most of us just want to say, no, 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 I, I don't want to know. Well, God goes there with Rebecca and listen to what he tells her about the nature of the conflict in her womb. Go down to verse 23. He says, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. Now that word divided means incompatible, irreconcilable differences. In other words, Rebecca, your life as it relates to your two children, these two boys, is going to be one of constant strife, constant grief. They're going to be at odds with one another. They're not just two boys. They're going to be the heads of two great nations. And by the way, when the Israelites were, were reading this, they would have known immediately because the Edomites were one of their arch enemies. They were the, one of the ones they were supposed to conquer and expel from the promise land and here they're getting they have an understanding of where this conflict roots itself this was even demonstrated in the way that they were born and not to be too graphic but the text goes there it says that jacob was grabbing hold of esau's hill now why do you think jacob would grab esau's hill why, why would that happen because 
Jacob wants to be first, right? He's like, no, Esau, you're not going out there. Come back here, son. I'm pulling you back in, right? Because I want to get out there first because I know that's where the blessing and the honor is the firstborn. And this is happening from the get-go. In fact, the word Jacob means heel grabber. Okay, parents, don't do that to your kid, right? Okay, to supplant. Now, we also know that the word for Jacob looks and sounds like the word for deceiver. And this is going to be a double entendre for Jacob as he grows up, as we're going to see even in this story. Now, let's, let's be honest here, and this is forecasting something for us. These two boys are as different as siblings could be. Parents, isn't it amazing? Same genetic line, your kids radically different, right? Radically different. And here we see an example of this. Look at verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, one of the misconceptions that we have, because we put our cultural lens on it, is we want to say something like, well, Pastor Paul, Esau's a man's man, right? He's hairy and red and goes hunting and fishing and I'm sure wears camo and drives a truck like all the guys at Child's High School drive. You get what I'm saying, right? He's, I'm sorry, I just had to throw that in there. He's a man's man. Now, but Jacob, (laughs) mama's boy, right? He's a sissy, he's hanging out, playing Scrabble in the tent or whatever he's doing up there. And I love Scrabble, by the way. I don't, that's a wrong way to look at this. See, as the firstborn, Esau would have been charged with the care of the family, which meant he would have needed to be like Isaac or Abraham, that is, at home in the tent city, taking care of business, running things. But instead, he doesn't want to stay in and do his homework, right, parents? He wants to go out and hunt. Well, when it says that Jacob was a tent dweller and he's a quiet man, literally that means steady, smart, crafty. Jacob undoubtedly was the responsible one. As we're going to see, he was the ambitious one. When you want something done or taken care of, you go to Jacob. Now, sidebar, and this is, I don't want to get into this today, but it's fascinating because we can speculate about this. We will get into this in a couple of weeks. We talk about the blessing. But isn't it interesting that Isaac favors Esau and Rebekah loves Jacob. This is the first indication that the way that both Isaac and Rebekah viewed their boys were through fundamentally different lenses. This is not just about like Isaac playing favorites and Rebekah playing favorites. I don't think that's what's going on here. Because look back at the text. Why, Why does it say that Isaac loved Esau? Because Esau could bring home the bacon, literally, right? He was a man of the field, a man of the game, and Isaac was so enslaved to his stomach, he loved him some Esau. Think for a second, who did God appear to to give this prophecy about Esau and Jacob? To whom? Rebekah. And we're going to start to see here that there's fundamentally different lenses that they're looking at their parenting through. And that's a challenge for all of us as parents. There, there, there can be a, a, just a pure what's in front of me. What, where, where's my child going to go to school? What are they going to be when they grow up? 
How much money are they going to make? Are they going to be accepted by their peers? Are they going to be the next Tiger Woods? I hate to break this to you. No, okay? All these human things, when in reality there's a greater spiritual reality that's important, that's going on, that goes to the heart of our child, that Moses is just giving us a little taste, a little foreshadowing of that. He's going to circle back around to it in a big way in a couple of chapters. So we see how different these boys are, don't we, in this interaction. It's, very, it's an infamous interaction. Esau and Jacob are around the fire, or Jacob is. He's cooking stew, verse 29 tells us. And Esau bursts into the inner ring where the, the food is being prepared. And literally, this is what the Hebrew says. It says, give me some of that red stuff. That's what he said, right? It's like all the guys coming together to watch the football game, give me some chicken wings, right? Give me something to eat. I mean, like, I don't care what's going on. I've got one thing in front of me that I'm focusing on, this game and this food. That is Esau. He's loud. He's boisterous. He's brash. He's impulsive. He's an act first, think later kind of guy. He's enslaved to his stomach, just like his daddy, That's a whole other sermon. We won't go there. He's impulsive. And look at Jacob, though. To use a Harry Potterism, he's a Slytherin through and through. He's ruthless. He's calculating. You can see him stroking his beard. He's thinking. It's almost as if he anticipated this very opportunity and is thinking about how to exploit it. And here it tells us in the text, he says, give me your birthright. Now, what is Jacob asking for? See, ancient Near East, the firstborn, the right to the firstborn, is essentially what he's asking. He's asking for, see, as the firstborn, you get a double inheritance. You get the lead position in the family. You have the responsibility to care for the family. You're the one that's going to take that torch and carry it on. You're the protector. And it's very clear Jacob wants that position for himself. Now, interestingly, it's not without precedence in the ancient Near East for someone to sell or transfer their birthright. But what's happening here is absolutely unprecedented. And what's unprecedented is Esau's flippant disregard. Give me the birthright, Esau, I'll give you some stew. I'll give you some porridge. And it literally says, you can't really, it's hard to tell in the English, but it, it, it goes like this. Esau ate, drank, and left. That's what it says. And obviously dropped the mic on the way out of the door, right? And it says that he despised his birthright. Now, what does that mean? See, a lot of times we get this idea that Esau was tricked into doing what he did. That's, see, when you despise something, that denotes a fair bit more um, planning and thoughts. And I think, I, I think Esau absolutely knew what he was doing. He hadn't been the spiritual leader of the family up to this point, and he had no plans on doing it anymore or, or in the future. Fine with me, Jacob. It's all yours. I don't need money. I don't need responsibility. 
I don't need, I don't need all of this life. I'm going to travel around and hunt and it's be me and you and a dog named Boo living across the land. You get what I'm saying, right? That's Esau. That's why the writer of Hebrews says that Esau acted in unbelief. He despised his birthright. And, and, and by the way, just quick sidebar lesson, men. Are you despising your leadership? If you think about where God has anointed you as leader in your home and marriages or work or with your kids, are you despising that? There's lots of sophisticated ways we despise that, right? We can be so dedicated to providing for our family that we have to work so much and be involved in so much. And maybe we're not around as much, and maybe we can't do this and do there. But, you know, they'll, one day they'll appreciate it. But you really what we're doing is despising our leadership. The window is short. Time is at hand. Esau despised his leadership. And then here at the end of of chapter 25, it says it kind of the curtain just kind of comes down. So that's the story. What's the meaning? And why is Moses giving us this? What is Moses wanting to communicate to us about God and his purposes? You need to understand something. If you're an Israelite, remember Moses was writing this to the Israelites who were wandering in the wilderness, getting ready to go into the promised land. They needed to understand where they had come from, where they were going. But if you're an Israelite and you are reading this, your initial impulse is is going to be to say, this is an absolute catastrophe. This is a disaster. Because the the line of promise had been given to Abraham and then to Isaac and to the firstborn, it most certainly should have gone to Esau. If you're a crown watcher on Netflix, this is like Edward abdicating the throne to his little brother who happens to be named Bertie, right? Okay, it's an absolute disaster. The line of promise, it was his duty. And from a human perspective, understand something, they would have said, what is up with this? Have the promises of God failed? Is the line of promise, is God's plan in danger? How in the world, Moses, are we to make sense of this? Now, there is another place in Scripture that's just like this, and it's, it's in Romans 9, where the Apostle Paul is wrestling with that very same question. So I want you to think about this for a second. In the early church, the early church was comprised predominantly, overwhelmingly, by Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were Jew. The community in Jerusalem were Jews. But it is now 25 years later, and the church in Rome is looking around, and they're asking, Paul, like, where are the Jews in the church? Like, we're all Gentiles. We're kind of like second generation adopted, grafted into this olive branch. But God's chosen people, and they've been given the promises and the covenant, and and they've rejected their own Messiah. And they were asking the same thing. They were saying, Paul, has the word of God failed? Have the promises of God fallen? And to answer that question and to provide a sense of hope, Where do you think Paul goes to in Romans 9 to say that's not the case? He goes right here. He goes to Genesis 25. And there's something in this 
text in this story that was of infinite comfort to Paul, and I believe is meant to be infinite comfort to us. Let's look at Romans 9, what Paul says about this passage. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls She was told the older will serve the younger. That's what we just read. And then for good measure, Paul throws in Malachi 1, 1 and 2. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, two two questions. What What does this mean? Why was this such a comfort to Paul? Obviously, as good... Americans, we're going to immediately zero in on this hate-love thing. And let's be honest, not a recommended parenting technique, right? So, so I'm looking at the Ayers family down there, and it's like, oh, Riley of love, but Riley, your brothers, we hated, right? Sorry, just, just picked one, right? Sorry to single you out. You get what I'm saying, like not, not, not your preferred parenting technique. What, is, what does this mean? I want you to think about this for a second. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's hyperbole. When Jesus in his earthly ministry was inside teaching in the synagogue or one of the homes and he was doing miracles and saying all these things, his siblings and his mother came up outside and sent a word to Jesus, a message to say, uh, Jesus, come on out here and, and talk to us because you're crazy, right? <laughs> you're crazy. You've lost your mind. You're just a carpenter. You're just, I mean, who's given you this authority and all this presence to teach? Then Jesus turns to the crowd, and what does he say to them? Who is my mother? Who is my father? Who are my brothers and sisters? Truly, truly, I tell you, unless you what? Hate your mother, your father, your brothers and sisters, you can have no part in me. What, What is Jesus saying? See, he's making a comparative analogy. He's saying, of course, love your family members. There's all kinds of scriptures about that. But he's just saying, if you want to follow Christ, your love for him has to be preeminent. It has to, be, it has to dominate. You must be, be willing to forsake all other things. And this is, this is Moses' way of saying, God loves everybody in a sense in a general sense, but his people, he loves with an everlasting love. His people, he loves with an eternal love. And parents, you understand this. If there was an emergency right now that we had to evacuate and there was some reason your children were in danger, parents, who are you going to try to save first? Your kids, right? I know you would try to save me, but, but after me, like the kids. Now, I could say, well, 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 you don't love my kids. You're not trying to save them. We know that's silly, right? There's a comparative love. No one has a love for their kids like their parents. That's good and natural. This is what Paul is saying is the reality with God. He's saying, Jacob, I have chosen. Jacob, I have loved Jacob I have pursued. Now, which begets another question. Again, because we're so in tune to fairness, 
we might say, and Paul does anticipate this, well, well, Pastor Paul or the Apostle Paul, why Jacob and not Esau? And, and theologians debate these things. And, and, and one line of thought goes something like this. Well, it's because God saw so much potential in Jacob. And he was a good dude, and he just, he just needed to be sanctified a little bit. And, you know, his heart was all right. He saw some potential. God could see down the corridors of faith and to see how Jacob would respond if he was put in this and this situation. And, and in other words, God could foresee the ways in which Jacob was more worthy to receive this choice and blessing than Esau. Here's the problem with that. Paul could not be more crystal clear that that is not what's happening. Before, go back to Romans 12, before they were born, before either had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose and election might stand. See, we, we zero in on the fairness of this. But from God's perspective, understand something, folks. What's fair is that neither Jacob nor Esau were chosen. See, as we unpack the story, we know that Esau is a scoundrel. But we're going to find that Jacob is, a, is doubly the scoundrel. Jacob is a man full of selfish ambition and greed, and he will stop at nothing. Guys, Jacob is ruthless. They didn't call, if your name is the deceiver, like that's a big deal, right? Your name is deceiver as Esau, Laban, Isaac, Leah are going to find out. The question for us is not why he doesn't save Esau. The question is why does he save Jacob? See, both are undeserving. Neither deserve grace. And it's a reminder for us when we get caught up on passages like this, when these are hard words for us, we're not thinking about it from a biblically-centered position. We're thinking about it from a man-centered position. We're all good. Everyone deserves a shake. Everybody deserves grace, when in reality, none of us do. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. See, this story is not meant to be a philosophical ignition point about, you know, the way God makes his sovereign choice. This passage is meant to point us to the absolute sheer grace of God. Now, why would this be important? Or why would this be comforting to Paul, the Apostle Paul? Why is his faith bolstered by Genesis 25? Why does he go here? It's simply for this, I think. Paul wants to say, everything that is happening is going according to prior plan. God is not surprised by any of this. God is not surprised by Esau's rejection, by Jacob's treachery. God is not surprised about what's going on in your life right now with your money, with your marriage, with your children, with your job, with your school. God's purposes, despite the people who have written the obituary, are not being ultimately thwarted. God is doing what God is going to do. And despite sin and rebellion, God is going to get his way. 
Paul goes to this passage and says, Israel, uh, church, church in Rome, I know things look really dark. I know things look really grim. I, I know that God's people have walked away from him, these, these brothers of the faith, these ethnic Jews. And guys, Paul doesn't say this from the ivory tower. Paul's heart is breaking. He says, I know things look dark. I know things look grim. But I'm here to tell you, you can trust God. Because I believe at the very bottom of so much of what we fear and what we wrestle through and the anxiety we experience about the things in our life can really fundamentally boil down to this. Is God good? Is he in control? Will his plans ultimately prevail? Will his purposes reign? And Paul wants to tell us, absolutely. So here's the application, last point, and this is going to be quick. What's the Esau in your life this morning? What's the thing that you woke up to that's just right there where you are just, like, you just, you cannot see past the Esau thing into the purposes of God? Maybe you're full of doubt, you're full of anxiety, you're full of worry. Maybe you're full of anger, bitterness, passivity, resignation. What's the Esau in your life? And then ask yourself, has the word of God failed? Has his plan been thwarted? And this is where we want to say, in the cross, absolutely not. See, God doesn't just give us a theoretical theory to deal with as it relates to the difficult things in our life. What God wants to show us is that he himself has walked this road with his son. See, if you think about the murder of Jesus Christ, Acts 2 tells us it was done by treacherous men, murderous men. It was done, it was the supreme injustice that anyone has ever committed, a sinless man murdered out of sheer jealousy and strife by the religious leaders. But here is what Peter reminds us in Acts 2. This this thwarting of the plan from a human perspective, this injustice, this point of unfairness, was actually the thing that God used to accomplish his sovereign will. Pastor Paul, I don't understand how that happens. I don't understand how that happens either. But I do know that it is the sovereign, supernatural, saving grace of God that does it. And this is, of course, true for you and I as well. This is why Paul can look at, in 2 Corinthians, look at his life and all his tribulations, and he can call them light, momentary afflictions. Not because they're not difficult, not because they're not incredibly painful, Paul saw desertions, death, disease, all through his life. But they are comparatively light and momentary in light of the fact that God is preparing for his people an eternal weight of glory. And that can never, ever be thwarted for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, Four oaks, fix your eyes not on what is seen, 
Because what is seen is temporary. Fix your eyes on what is unseen. Because what is unseen is eternal. See, we're, we're meant to read this passage and to see ourselves in it. He, n- no one looks good in this passage, do they? You may say, Pastor Paul, that's all great, but I, I'm like Jacob. I've just made a mess of things, and I've been ambitious and, and acted not out of faith, but out of, out of blind greed and gusto for life, and I've hurt many people on the way to which God wants you to know that in Christ, he tells you, Jacob, I loved. That promise is for you. That's the gospel according to Esau and Jacob. So I invite you this morning, folks, trust in the sovereign, saving, supernatural grace of God who slayed and gave up his son for you to have gospel hope. Let's pray.